Please be seated. Well, it's not only the first week of school uh, for kids in Charlottesville, most places at least, it is the first week of the Jesus School of Social Etiquette. Um, if you just listen to that um, reading from Luke, uh, Jesus is telling, um, he's giving some advice about how to socialize, and he's got some advice for those who attend parties, and he's got advice for those who give them. Um, the occasion of this kind of unsolicited uh, instruction is that he's at a party given by a, by a local teacher, and he's watching people come in and jockey for position. Now, in this case, they're literally jockeying for position. If you sat at certain places, that was more in indicative of how important you were, how significant you were. Um, but this is a very common thing, I think, in, in life. And what he says is, uh, when you are invited, in fact, don't, don't go and seek out the best seat. Instead, go sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. This instinct, this uh, way of being in the world, where we are in so many different contexts measuring ourselves, figuring out how we stack up against those in our vicinity. I mean, it's, it's, it's omnipresent. And it's not just for kids figuring out where to sit at, uh, at lunch during school. I mean, um, uh, there was an amazing headline, or mock headline in a, a website called The Hard Times that said, please, you have to tell me your age so I can see if I should feel bad about where I am at in my career. <laughs> I don't want to know your age, by the way. Um, measuring ourselves and others, how do I stack up? Where do I fall on the social hierarchy? It's a way of being which is instinctual, but it is exhausting and degrading. It is a way in which we're always trying to uh, bolster our standing and avoid losing any kind of status in the world's eyes. And the, the fall, by the way, is full of it this season. Uh, just this past week, I took one of my sons to two different tryouts. But you don't have to be joining uh, teams and things like that to know what I'm talking about. There are, there are hierarchies all over the place. New, new, new programs that are being started. Uh, new, even sort of the traffic stops. I was re remarking to my wife about how one of the great things about summer is you get a break from all of the constant measuring and uh, seeing how you stack up. But but do you? I mean, then you come back and you'd be like, well, how was your, you hear about other people's vacations, you think, well, I should take my kids to the Grand Canyon, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I just can't organize something like that. But how do you do it? You went to the Amazon? I hate you, you know? Like, or you know, hey, we spent one dollar getting across the country, I, I don't know how, uh, it's, it's, it's a recipe for resentment is what it is. And I think a lot of us love uh, to, uh, to, to sample this sort of thing, in fact. Another commentator last week said that our drug of choice right now in society is not necessarily booze or narcotics, but it's our drug of choice is knowing who we're better than. Knowing who we're better than. Knowing that we're, we get it, and they don't. We're part of the problem. Uh, sorry, we're part of the solution, not the problem. We're on the side of the angels, not the devils. We're the right kind of people, 
And they're the wrong kind of people. So Christ uh, is counseling the exact opposite. He is counseling humility as a default approach to life. And it's a very, it sounds beautiful, and yet it kind of is, is very is difficult to implement. As Mike Tyson once said, I'm trying to be humble, but it's so hard. It's so hard. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. <laughs> um, but he was on to something. And the Christian understanding of humility is actually not a view of yourself as a lowly worm and that you're sort of a self-loathing. Humility is actually the understanding others, thinking of others before yourselves. The emphasis is not on our lowness or lack of significance, but on the needs and well-being of our neighbors. And so Jesus urges us to take the lowest seat. Sit in the last place. And by doing so, is he, is he urging us to adopt sort of a false humility, kind of a self-deprecation that doesn't ring true? No, I think he's urging us to get out of the ranking game entirely. He knows that that sort of thinking, those sorts of impulses go nowhere good. They lead to exclusion and judgment and loneliness and heartache. But they also just lead to misery. I mean, have you ever been at a party when you're talking to someone, you can tell they're scanning the room to see if there's someone more important? I mean, <laughs> if you're in ministry, you definitely know what that's like. <laughs> um, you have a lot more fun at parties where people aren't trying to stack each other up all the time. Hopefully you can find a community like that, but if you can't, maybe this can be that place? I don't know. Um, a life of uh, trying to uh, find the, your, the best place uh, to sit is a life full of fear, of losing standing and of protecting, uh, hoarding what sort of esteem you have and the anxiety about accruing more of it. But life in the kingdom of God, as Christ goes to great pains to make clear, is about receiving rather than establishing because it's the life that is dictated by love. And love is not a matter of deserving, but is what happens when the deserving falls apart. But Jesus also has a message for hosts, people who throw the parties, not just for those who attend them. He says, whenever you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Don't invite those who can repay. Don't invite those don't, from whom uh, you can get something in return. Jesus is urging us against seeing people as a means to an end, and he's exposing the extent to which, even when we think we're being good, we're often being self-serving. We want to associate with the right people, or we want to be seen to be associated with the right people. Um, we want to enhance our reputation by those that we are associated with. And therefore, our socializing often has strings attached. It, instead of giving a gift uh, of a party, it's like a down payment on future sort of reputational return. 
I don't know what it is, but he is saying, let your gifts be gifts. Let love be love and not payment. And it's much easier said than done. I caught a very harrowing glimpse of this. Uh, this past summer, the journalist named Eve Fairbanks published a book on uh, South Africa in the years since apartheid was dismantled, and it was called The Inheritors. And what she was really interested in was taking the pulse, uh, the spiritual, emotional, and sort of existential pulse of white South Africans. And how were they doing in the years since 1994 when the apartheid system, which privileged the white settlers far above the African, uh, the black population, how were they doing? And what she found was that there's a palpable sadness amongst those, uh, the former ruling class of the country, especially among those who worked hardest to dismantle apartheid. This is what she wrote. She said, many white South Africans told me that black forgiveness felt like a slap in the face. By not acting toward us as we acted toward you, you're showing us up, and now we'll owe you a debt of gratitude forever. That is what she was picking up on. But she said, perhaps the strangest thing I saw was how deeply troubled white South Africans were by this feeling that they had never faced a full reckoning for apartheid. They wanted to pay. They feel that they have been let off easy. They wanted to atone, and they felt they were being denied that by the, the new uh, ruling black class. The Afrikaner journalist Ryan Mallon, who had opposed apartheid strongly, wrote that by most measures, the aftermath went better than almost any white person could have imagined, but his experience of post-1994 South Africa has been complicated. A few years after the end of apartheid, he moved to an upscale Cape Town neighborhood where most mornings he would drink macchiatos uh, and stare at the seaside. And he said, the sea is warm and the figs are ripe, but this existence is unbearable. The Bible was right about a thing or two. It is infinitely worse to receive than to give, especially if the gift is mercy. Now what a thing to say. He could not forgive the black population for forgiving him. He needed to keep paying. He had to atone, and he refused almost to accept his forgiveness. Now maybe that's too global or too political for you to imbibe, but I guarantee you there's a place in your life where you are having a hard time accepting that you might in fact not need to pay anymore, that you might be loved in the here and now that there might not be anything more demanded of you by God than to uh, enjoy the party. And indeed, you'll notice that in both cases, Christ is painting a portrait of life as a party. We see this extended throughout all of the New Testament, all the way to Revelation, where we hear about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Life is an act itself of gratuity and love, but it's not just any kind of party. It's not the kind of party I witnessed yesterday uh, driving home through the corner. Uh, <laughs> whew. Um, it's the kind where the host, where people are not jockeying for position, 
But it's the kind where the host comes over to those who have been humbled, to those on the sidelines, the wallflowers among us, and he says, friend, move up higher. It is a picture of a party where the host comes to you. He descends the ladder of ranking with good news. And by the way, when he speaks about the host, he is referring to himself, the God who descended to earth full of humility, born as a defenseless baby who grew up to be a man crucified as a criminal without honor, who emptied himself of all prerogative and took the last place for the sake of those he loves, which is you, his beloved children. And that's the life we have been granted, hard as it is to receive. It is a life of true freedom, the freedom to sit wherever, to be free from sizing, sizing others up and jockeying for position, to know through his blood we do not have anything to earn. Our love, our acceptance is secure. We are free to sit wherever there is a spot knowing that our honor, our value, our identity, indeed our belovedness is not determined by what we perceive or what other perceive our rank to be. It is determined instead by the host who is gracious. Frederick Beekner, who Mary Lou quoted last week, who's a writer and a preacher who died recently at the age of 96 in the past couple weeks, even the national outlets have been full of tributes to him. And he def uh, described grace in the following way that I'll leave you with. He says, grace is something you can never get but only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. The grace of God means something like, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you that I created the universe. I love you. And here is your life. You might never have been, but you are. Because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Amen. Please stand as we affirm our faith using the Nicene Creed on page 358, your Book of Common Prayer. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ,